name's Jeff. Um, I founded a company called Twilio. Twilio is, as Mark said, AWS for telecom. And I'll give you a little bit about my background. But what I wanted to talk about today was SaaS, um, a few different aspects of SaaS, but then in particularly how you price that hot SaaS. And I thought about putting a nice ass up on the screen, you know, because sex sells and it'll wake everybody up. And then I figured that's tacky. And I thought I'd do it anyway. <laughs> Sorry. All right. So uh, quick, let me give you my background um, so you know who I am. This is my fourth company that I've started, uh, although uh, prior to this, I was also a product manager at Amazon Web Services. So started out in 97, my first uh, entrepreneurial endeavor, started an online lecture notes company <coughs> during the dot-com days, uh, raised a bunch of money, blew it out to 200 campuses nationwide. Then I went, it was the first CTO of StubHub.com, the online ticketing exchange. Um, and uh, after doing that for a while, uh, went for a total change of pace and started a bricks and mortar company for extreme sporting goods. Uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, surfing, that kind of stuff. Uh, total change of pace. Um, and then after that, went, uh, went over to Amazon. Uh, it was product manager early on at AWS. And after I left Amazon, was looking for the next thing to start and realized that at each of my three previous companies, we had wanted to incorporate communications into the web apps we we're building. And every time we were stymied, because we said we don't have the foggiest idea how to make a phone ring. And so we started uh, Twilio. And Twilio was all about simplifying telecom and bringing it to uh, the masses. And the idea is you know, open up this black box of telecom and make it accessible to the millions of developers out there who can now innovate uh, in this industry that is not new, but is certainly new to most developers because we've never played around with it. But that's, that's who I am, and that's the perspective I'm coming from. Let's talk about um, the general world of SaaS. And I start out, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I've, uh, I had a cold like two weeks ago, and it's still like hanging around. Um, starting out with who are you talking to? Who is a customer for SaaS? And that's the most important thing before you start thinking about anything else, right, is, of course, understanding who your customer is. And I like to sum up the notion of who a SaaS customer is with this um, picture that's become something of, a, of, of an important meme at our company. Uh, it goes like this. How to draw an owl. Step one, draw some circles. Step two, draw the rest of the fucking owl. <laughs> so what does this have to do with SAS? This goes to the notion of who we are as a company and who we feel our customers are as a company, and we have a word for it, and the word is doers, right? People who figure shit out and get it done, right? And to them, this is like the, you know, to me, it's sort of a rallying cry for draw some circles, and then there's no instruction book for the rest. You just got to go figure it out and draw the rest of the fucking owl. Uh, and that's what being a doer is all about. And so if someone does something great, they figure out something at our company, we say, way to draw the fucking owl, and we actually have little owls that we give out. Um, stuffed animals. Um, <laughs> I got 10 owls, oh my god, I can't come to work anymore. Um, and so who are these doers, right? And, and I also visualize it as the kind of person who's up late at night trying to solve a problem, right? When everybody else has gone to sleep, they're the one who's trying to figure out and get past a hurdle to check in some code and to mark something as solved. And I think that's really important to like, think about the mindset of, of the doer and who the customer is and why SaaS appeals to them. Because largely it is about uh, permitting innovation and permitting progress on the timeline 
that the doer is working on. So when they're ready to adopt, when they're ready to buy, when they're ready to go figure out what you're offering them, you're there to do it. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But this doer's notion is so important to us that we actually have ads on the internet just advertising the whole notion of doers. Um, and they link to a page on our website dedicated to doers. Um, and we list some of our favorite doers, uh, people who just picked up their tools and got stuff done, and people we admire because they've done and built great things. You'll notice uh, Patrick McKenzie is up here. He's going to be talking to you tomorrow. Uh, but he's one of our favorite doers as well. Um, he's a one-man software machine. And so this is really important, right? Picturing these people who are adopting SaaS because you make it easy for them to do great things for their company. Um, and typically, it involves getting started easily, adopting easily, and figuring out what you do quite easily. Now, this isn't every kind of SaaS. There is enterprise SaaS. But I'm mostly talking about the kind that a lot of people here are familiar with, which is you, know, you can get up and going and sign up uh, on your own terms and get started. Uh, and to me, that's the magic of, of software as a service, right? It's this low upfront, easy, uh, low commitment, easy to get started kind of model. Um, so that's what we're largely going to be talking about. So we've identified the doer as a customer. But oftentimes, you think about, well, I'm building software that enables a business to do something. Right? I'm a B2B company, and so a business is going to adopt my thing, not a doer. Um, and so part of what I'm here to say is that you know, a doer is your customer. Um, and particularly when you've got a sign up and a form where you can get started and a credit card field, that the enterprise or a company is not your customer. But really, think of it first as a person. People are your customers. And so thinking about who inside of, say, that bigger organization who's going to click that button is really important to a self-service SaaS-type model. Even if a large company ultimately is your customer, well, you have to start somewhere. And starting with people is how you do it. So if you think of a large enterprise as your customer, you're not going to work. You've got to target a single person. For us, that's represented by Jazzy Chad. Jazzy Chad's a customer of ours, and actually now an employee of ours. But he started as a customer of ours. And it's like you think about this one person. Right? And what are his hobbies? What are his skills? What hours does he work? What tools does he use? And appeal to him, and he will become the advocate for using you inside of, say, his organization or with his peers. But you have to think about the individual person, not just the enterprise, as a big uh, organization. Right? And that's where you get to doers. Right? Organizations and enterprises are not typically known for their doingness-ish. Uh, enterprises are not known for getting shit done, but people are. Right? So thinking about the doer and targeting at them is really important. Right? So now it's the question is, well, how do you talk to doers? How do you talk to a person who's very self-motivated, who really wants to get stuff done and is, in, and is working on their own timeline to get shit solved and moved on and, 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 and essentially solve problems? Right? So how do we talk to them? And, and because a lot of them are very smart and they're very motivated, they're also very skeptical of marketing BS. And so there's sort of, I think, a few unique ways that SaaS as an industry has figured out how to talk to doers and how to empower them. So let's look at a few examples, right? There's a few that are uh, fairly canonical in the space as far as really uh, great SaaS companies. Um, so 37 Signals, of course, has a number of products, Basecamp being the flagship uh, that many in here, I'm going to guess, actually use for, uh, for project management, things like that. Um, you've also got uh, CRM. Uh, I threw Batchbook in here, neat, neat CRM product, Campaign Monitor. 
great for email delivery and marketing. Zendesk, we've talked about before, great for customer service, and I'll throw Twilio in there as well. Uh, just examples, but it's interesting. If you paid attention during those screenshots, you'll see a few common threads that I'm going to highlight now, and I call them the mating calls of the northern spotted doer. And essentially, these are the ways that companies in the SaaS business, in the SaaS realm, communicate to potential customers that we are a solution for you. This is the mating call, what doers are looking for to adopt something. So let's, let's take a look, uh, for example, I'll pick Zendesk. Um, what are the mating calls that Zendesk gives off for their customers, other than, than a fat guy uh, on the page? So uh, first of all is you've got the tour. I'll go into more detail in a minute. Second, you've got pricing. And third, you've got try it out, get started, sign up now, get going. Those are the three mating calls of SaaS companies. And I'll look at Twilio and you'll see the same ones. Um, and they're very common across all of these sites, so let's talk about them in a little more detail. Um, so first of all, you've got the notion of the tour. Um, and this is really interesting. What you may think is obvious. I'm gonna show you what my product does. Now, for most SaaS companies, uh, you know, especially with UIs, there's screenshots. You know, people call it screenshot porn uh, that really gets people interested and like, oh yeah, I totally get how that works, right? And people get excited about sexy looking screenshots. Uh, for Twilio, we don't have a UI because we're an API company, so it's kind of our documentation uh, and code samples and things like that. But either way, there's some notion of a tour, right? And there's lots of different varieties of it. There's, uh, you know, all these different aspects. But what they have in common is that they actually tell you what the software does. That may seem retardedly obvious. But in the world of enterprise software, they don't tell you what the software does. They want to keep it a mystery. There's some high-level things, but you know, if you really want to figure out if the software solves your problem, you're going to call a sales guy, and the sales guy is going to just tell you that it solves your problem, whatever you say your problem is. Um, whereas SaaS companies tell you what their product does. Big deal. Okay, next. Well, you like what it does, how much does it cost? Again, SaaS companies tell you how much it costs. And you, the informed, intelligent doer, can make a decision if what this software does solves your problem at a price you're willing to pay for it. It's called making an informed buying decision. And doers are very good at doing that. Um, and, and, and SaaS companies put the pricing on the page, right? This may seem obvious, right? We look at all the SaaS examples that we, we see in common life, and you see a pricing model on the page, yet, Again, in the enterprise software world 10 years ago, it was very rare for B2B SaaS, or B2B software period, to have a price tag on it. Call a sales guy, he'll tell you how much it costs after he finds out exactly how much you can pay. Next, of course, is the getting started. So a sign up button, right? Uh, you, you figured out that this software could do what you want it to do at a price that you're willing to pay that makes sense for you, Great, how do I get started? Now the doer's there at 3 a.m. figuring out how he's gonna send a marketing blast tomorrow. He doesn't wanna contact your sales guy, he wants to sign up and he wants to get going with minimal friction. Now you can, there's a lot said and studied about sign up forms, about how much information to take, um, about how much friction you should introduce or remove based on what fields you ask for and how many of them there are, but the whole notion here really, the common thread, is that you actually let them sign up, again, enterprise software, there's nothing to sign up for. All you can do is contact a sales rep who 
might call you back in a few days if you said your budget was big enough and your organization was big enough and your buying timeline was soon enough. Uh, otherwise, you're stuck finding another solution, right? So this is a key thing, right? These things may sound obvious, yet there's examples abound if you go look out there where companies don't do this, right? We boil this all down to one notion of no shenanigans. It was recently discovered that if you crawled the Twilio website and piped it through uh, grep, and you, you piped it through grep with the word shenanigans, and then piped it into word count dash L, you got an answer that was something about 384 instances of the word shenanigans on our website. So we're big fans of advocating for this no shenanigans approach to business. Tell someone how much it costs, tell them what your product does, and if that makes sense to them, let them buy it. This sounds like it's obvious, but it's not. Here's a vendor I had to deal with uh, at my last company. <clears throat> my favorite part about this, how to buy. <clears throat> you know, my wife tells me I'm really good at knowing how to buy things, especially if they're from Apple. Um, you know, we're all very good at that. We know how to take our credit cards out. We know how to buy things. We're very skilled at that as Americans uh, and even other non-Americans. Um, but if a company has to reteach you how to buy their product, my feeling is they are doing it wrong. So let's look at how people come to adopt this kind of stuff. And I call this the doer funnel, uh, also in our company known as Mommy, where do customers come from? So it looks something like this. You've got an adoption funnel. It starts at the top with your marketing activities. Right, you're trying to reach your target customer. Um, you're gonna send them to your website. You're an online business. That is primarily how you market your stuff, I am guessing, uh, especially because it's SaaS, right? So your whole idea, send them to the website. Now, you let them read information. What does your product do? You let them see the pricing. How much does it cost? And if they like it, they click a sign up button. Now hopefully, chances are you've got some form of free trial, a way to get started with low risk, no credit card, or maybe a credit card, you don't charge it for 14 days. There's a variety of ways to do this, but the whole idea is that you give them a low-risk way to get started, um, and then eventually they pay. Um, and that's what the funnel looks like. And your goal is to get someone through the funnel as quickly as possible in each step of the progress, right? And this is called self-service. This is what I've been talking about. The whole notion that there's no sales guy involved, you just get them through this funnel and get them to the point where they put in their credit card and are paying you as quickly and easily as possible because you solved their problem. Um, we call this the consumerization of enterprise software, right? So stuff that 10 years ago was a big enterprise sale with a sales guy in a six to 12 month sales cycle is now a few clicks in a credit card and you're up and running in an afternoon. That's the consumerization of enterprise software that is what a lot of SaaS is addressing. A lot of SaaS is taking things that could have been done in the past that were very expensive and very time consuming and making it now simple to get up and running and get started. Um, so in our space, you know, we appeal to developers and we sort of think of it as, you know, we got all these uh, software products out there and you know, you say, don't you just love that SDK? Does it come in Ruby, right? This is the buying process, right? And literally this is how developers in our world think, right? If I am a Ruby developer, and your API doesn't have a Ruby variant, then maybe I move on to one that does. Um, this is a very consumer way of thinking, right? It's very much about making an individual decision at that moment, are you gonna solve a problem in a way that's easy for me at a price that I like? And that's how consumers think. Um, and so, you know, is that just sort of independent people who don't have any money to pay you because they're not part of businesses? Well, I'm here to say there's also doers inside of enterprises, inside of big companies. What they're doing is they're leading the charge for adoption of whatever you have inside their bigger company. 
Maybe it starts with them personally. Right? That's how Salesforce started. Individual salespeople buying Salesforce. Pretty soon, enough salespeople uh, had bought it individually and were expensing it that the IT department said, you know what, we're going to buy a site-wide license. Um, maybe it's a departmental solution for something like sending emails. Uh, and a department signs up for Campaign Monitor. And then it grows from there. But no matter how you do it, this applies because your doer can be at a small company, can be an individual, can be an entrepreneur, or can be playing that role of the early advocate inside of a big company. And so the way that looks in this pipeline is you get these people to sign up and figure out what you do and figure out that you solve a problem for them. But if they're at a big company, and they, you know, they put in their credit card and they, they signed a click wrap agreement that they didn't even read, right? that typically doesn't fly at big companies. So when you move to a bigger stage of adoption, you move from the self-service and then you kind of bump it up into what we call at Twilio, full service. And the notion is if you're at a big company, you're a Fortune 1000, or even if you're not a big company, but you're going to spend a lot of money, then you might need a little extra hand-holding beyond what a credit card form and a terms of service agreement that nobody read uh, will do for you. And that's where our sales team comes in. Right? So it's sort of this hybrid approach of self-service, empowering people to make a decision, but if they have a bigger use case or from a bigger company and they need something slightly different from you as a company, you can handle that as well, right? Because you don't want what are potentially your great customers to go away because, well, you know, I can't put this on a credit card, so I, I guess I better find someone else, right? So you let people know that, look, if you're a bigger company, we can handle you as well. Just contact our sales team, right? So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can contact a sales team if you need. Typically, if you notice this funnel, it's at the bottom of the funnel. It's after you figured out that we solve your problem. Not the typical enterprise model where, well, first, let's do the sales process, and you cut us a check, and then we figure out if we actually solved your problem. Right? That's how typical enterprise sales work. This inverts it, puts the proof uh, of solution at the beginning, and if it does solve the problem, then you've got a very fast sales cycle at the end. And you've got some really productive salespeople because the customer already decided they want it. It's just a matter of maybe getting slightly different enterprise terms or getting payment terms or paying by invoice or getting an SLA or 24 by 7 support, something that you may not give to, to uh, self-service customers. That's how we do it, and it's worked uh, really well as a means of capturing uh, both the sort of initial doer um, uh, in small company market, also all the way up through and including Fortune 500s who want to adopt the solution but need a slightly different way of doing business with you. Um, so that's sort of about the, you know, who these people are and why they're adopting and how they're adopting that I find really interesting as this stage for why SaaS exists and why SaaS is interesting and why SaaS is, is, has a foothold now in the world of business software, uh, whereas 10 years ago it was a very different model. And it creates huge opportunities for us as entrepreneurs to go and build great businesses to get started fairly inexpensively where you can discover the customer market because you've got these self-service people who come in and are very measurable and very fast in their decision-making, right? With a click or the lack of a click, you can learn a lot as opposed to a 12-month enterprise sales cycle where it took you 12 months to figure out that your product wasn't serving the market. So this is very cool and it's very good news for us as entrepreneurs. But now the question that I'm gonna leave the rest of the time for is how much? How much should you charge and how should you think about pricing? Right? And what sort of look might you get if you give the wrong price? Um, and um, as you know, we've said before, pricing is hard. Pricing is not easy, but there's a few different tools and a few different ways you can look at it to, to help you make sense of it um, that, uh, that, that, that help you out. The good news here, this is really good news, there's a few simple formulas 
that, that you need to remember when you're thinking about pricing. Um, so first, a simple universal pricing formula. You create some value for your customer. And any value for a business should be quantifiable. You know, it may not be obvious, but it should be quantifiable in some way. If you charge exactly that amount, they have no reason to adopt you. You discount it a little bit, and that's your price. So the whole magic here is figuring out how much value you created, and then, of course, how much you should discount it. But this is a simple formula that gives you guidance on how your customer is thinking about your um, offering and what you're offering them and how they, how they think about it when they're making the decision. So let's dive into this a bit more, right? So it's all about value created. So measuring that is key, and that's pretty hard. Um, and you can talk to customers, and there's a lot of ways to do it. But let me start out by saying one thing that helps us measure the value created is by making an assumption. And I have an assumption that I'm operating with. I don't know if all of you have this assumption as well in your businesses, but consumer or business, right? SaaS for consumers, SaaS for businesses. Um, the bad news is consumers are not rational. If you need any more proof of that, pretty uh, bizarre how consumers make their decisions. However, the good news here is that businesses are pretty rational at the end of the day. Every decision they make about how to spend money is driven by two factors. Either it'll increase revenue or it will reduce costs. And these are both measurable value points. You can measure how much uh, revenue am I increasing for you or how much costs am I reducing for you. Now, is it easily measurable? Not at all. But if you can paint a likely picture, either with a you know, total cost of ownership calculator or something like that, or just paint a picture in their head that one of these two things is likely to happen if they adopt what you're doing, that's how you sort of get your foot in the door, and that's how businesses will think about it, right? Now, of course, if you're doing something even in the world of business and, and you have no measurable value that you're providing to your customers, well, that's okay too. You can just put ads on it. Uh, that's what the advertising business is all about. Um, <laughs> um, so, without ads, business customers have this framework for uh, measuring value, right? And that's pretty cool, because that's a basis for us to think about how we should go about doing our pricing, right? So now you've, you've figured out that you're, you're, you've got some value, so you can go ahead, you can be proud, and put price on your junk, uh, or your bits and pieces, no, your, your SaaS, Puts a, put a price on your SaaS, um, because you're proud, you're creating value for somebody, and that's the key thing. If you're not doing that in the world, then you've got bigger problems. So, let's think about a few models, though. Um, and these things should ultimately start coming together in the middle. Um, let's think uh, about cost-based pricing. So if you guys aren't familiar with cost-based pricing, you think about your margin. So margin is profit over price. Profit is uh, the price you charge minus your cost of delivering it. And so your price is your cost over one minus your margin. So you can essentially decide what you think the right margin is for your business. You can decide that I'm going to be a high margin business and my product and my marketing better back that up. Or you can decide I'm gonna be a low margin business and go for volume and my product and my, margin and my marketing should also back that up. But you can essentially back into knowing your, your target margin if you have a business plan, you probably have a target margin in there to come up with what you think the, your price in the market should be. So let's run through a quick example. If your target margin is 50%, it's a pretty easy example, and your cost to deliver a service is $10, you do the math, and your price is $20. Right? Pretty easy. 
Um, so cost-based approach would say, look, I know what my costs are, and I'm going to build in a fair margin, and that's how I'm going to uh, determine my price for my customers. Right? So that's one way of doing it. It's a cost-following model. That's how, for example, Amazon Web Services goes about pricing its things. You'd say, well, why would you ever do it that way? Well, it's sort of interesting. At Amazon Web Services, they target markets like storage and computing. Utterly enormous, enormous markets. And so they actually went with a low-margin approach, cost-following. Take the cost to deliver that service, add in a fair margin, but not a huge one, and that's how you price it. Why wouldn't you just add in a huge margin? Hey, well, then someone else is going to come in and undercut you. So add in a small but fair margin, but one that discourages competition. Um, and that way, you're sort of going for the core of the market. You're going to go for scale. And because you're going for scale, you're also going to try to operate at a lower cost structure than anyone else in your industry. So if you go to market with a low margin and low cost, you then get more scale, which lowers your cost. You then lower your price. And I know this morning we heard you shouldn't lower your price. I disagree. You should lower your price if this is your pricing strategy. And then you increase your market even more, right? And it is a, it is a loop that keeps on growing your business. Um, and this is roughly how Twilio, uh, this is how we look at our, our pricing structure as well. We are going for a very large telecom market. It is utterly enormous. And we believe that by lowering prices, we encourage more and more use cases to get built and more and more people to adopt and build things that they wouldn't have built at a higher price. Therefore, as we achieve greater and greater scale, we pass those savings on to our customers. And indeed, more and more stuff gets built, right? And so that's how we've approached the market. But it's hard with SaaS. <coughs> it's hard with SaaS. What if your unit costs, you know, your costs in that equation there, are basically zero? And this is actually the case with most, if not all, SaaS products. Because, look, you got two web servers and a MySQL server, and your total costs on a monthly basis are about $150. Now, for some amount of time, you can add a whole lot of customers to that configuration. Right? Maybe add another redundant MySQL server or another web server or something like that. But essentially, right, you've got a fixed cost, and you can keep adding customers to it uh, for a very long time. And so it's hard to say, well, my actual cost to service that customer is four cents that month if you do the math. So therefore, I'm going to charge them six cents with a cost-following model. That's probably not how you should think about it. So you get to value-based pricing. Um, and this is actually more useful for businesses where the uh, hard costs are very low. And the unit costs with servicing another customer are very low, if not negligible. This is also a way for you to try to capture more value in your pricing than you would otherwise. So let's think about this equation. Start. Does my service generate value? No. OK, well, you got other problems. Don't worry about pricing it. Yes. How much value? Right? So back to that initial question. How much value am I generating? So there's a few ways to think about this. Are they saving money by adopting whatever you're doing? Great. Are they replacing a more expensive solution with yours? Great. Figure out how much, and then you've got a price. Are they saving money because of efficiency gains? They didn't use anything before, but they're moving from, say, spreadsheets to CRM to manage their sales team. How much money are they going to save by having more efficiency built into their business? 
Or are they generating more revenue because of what you're offering them? The answer to all three of these is roughly the same. How much are you, are you saving them or how much are you making them? Apply some amount of discount and you should have a winning formula for the customers, right? And it's pretty much that easy. Of course, calculating the value isn't hard, but that's what talking to customers is all about. The last one, we've got cost-based, we've got value-based, and now you've got competitive pricing. So what are the competitors in this market charging? And how do you fit into that? And I actually say, for the most part, that's a red herring. You should see the previous two slides to determine your pricing strategy. You can uh, use this as some guidance. However, I don't think competitive pricing is really a strategy. It's a way of understanding where you fit in the market. So now what is interesting, though, is you can do a sanity check. So look at all three of these methods of pricing your service. And you can start to see, right, if they converge in the middle, where your costs make sense and your margin makes sense and the value prop makes sense, and from a competitive landscape point, uh, point of view it makes sense, you're probably doing something right. And that's where these three different models kind of come together and can give you a sense of if you're on the right track, right? So then the question is, is the price right? We picked the same, the same graphic for this, Darmesh and I. Um, we picked the same graphic. Is, do you have the right price, right? And so that's a question that now only interactions with customers will tell you. So you need some feedback loops. You need some ways of testing this with customers and seeing if it's going to work, right? So I'll give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, 2006, I think it was, uh, I had an idea for an API that would do the deliverability of email for you. So it was an SMTP gateway that you'd send your email through that would figure out how to get it into the inbox of Hotmail and Yahoo and Gmail and everybody else. I called it MailSpade. Literally, I just spent $7, I bought the domain name, it was good enough. I put together this janky-ass site, um, and basically it explained the value prop in a pretty bad way, um, and I put a price on it. And then what I did is I drove traffic to it. And this is one of the methods that uh, Eric Ries talks about in the whole lean startup world, which is testing hypotheses, and Google is a great way to do that, because you can drive traffic for very little money. So I put up this site called MailSpade to see if there was any interest in this product, right? And then you do some sort of split testing and you drive traffic to it. And uh, so here's an example of uh, you know, uh, an email that I would have been targeting, or a search term I would have been targeting, transactional email API. And you can see there's actually companies now targeting it. I think I was roughly the only one at the time. And you can do some split testing, right? You can have $10 per month plus half a penny per email, or $1,000 a month and a tenth of a penny per email, uh, or no, nothing, no, no minimum commitment a month and 10 cents per email, right? And just drive a bunch of traffic to, and essentially what you're looking for is who clicks that really janky looking sign up button up top and how many people clicked it based on the different pricing models you put out there. And you can learn a lot very quickly based on that simple little test. Um, and the tools are very robust out there now to be able to run those tests, right? There's a lot of A-B testing um, uh, SaaS companies out there, people like Optimizely, who let you do A-B tests really easily with drag and drop ease. So it's very cheap to run these tests. Um, there is a question about, do you run it on your brand if you're an existing company, or do you create another fake brand to run it as? Uh, I think it is hard to run pricing tests on a live product, um, but I don't actually have any advice on that, so. 
But the key thing is, talk to potential customers um, and learn the value prop during some sort of private period when you're still figuring it out, when it's not public and it's not widely distributed. Um, and what's interesting, we did this at Twilio, so we built the very first version of Twilio. We gave it to a bunch of people who, we, who told us they would be likely customers uh, during the sort of idea stage before we built anything. We went and talked to a, a bunch of people and found out that they would you know, be interested in such a thing. So we built an alpha version, didn't scale, it was all running on one server, and it was like half implemented. But we gave them the docs and we said, go to town, give us feedback, right? And what's interesting is it was free. We didn't charge anything. This is our way of getting feedback from customers. We don't charge during a private beta because um, we want to take pricing out of the question. What we really want is for customers to just play around with it, hack around, see what kind of things they can do so that they'll give us feedback. And in particular, we don't price it because we want to then turn around and get their feedback on the price. Do you eventually start charging those customers? Yes. Yes, we do. So when we turn it on, we do start charging those customers. You've got to give them a heads up. Hey, we're going to be uh, turning on billing next week. We really appreciate all your feedback. Hopefully you got some value out of it, but we're giving you a heads up. We're going to start charging. Um, but the interesting thing is we like to have them understand the value a little bit up front and then get their feedback on pricing. Um, so there's an interesting interaction I had at, with MailSpade. So I ran this little experiment, and then I got busy doing other things, um, namely starting Twilio. But I got an email one day from a customer, a potential customer. And he was asking me uh, about the, the site and the functionality and all this stuff, right? And I actually got into an email exchange with him about what he would charge or what he would pay for it. Um, I don't have the whole email thread, but uh, it was really interesting because he, he actually started out, and I got a call from another customer right on the same time who said, you know, I couldn't find any contact information on the site, so I did a who is and just called the phone number that was listed on the domain name. You know, I would have figured that's enough uh, instead of not to contact a business, if you have to do a who is to figure out how to talk to them. But you know, some people out there are, 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 pretty, um, uh, are pretty aggressive. So it was interesting, right? I did get to speak with some customers early on uh, in this experiment to sort of ask them more about what are they looking for, what would they pay for it, how much value was I providing them, what were they using today, et cetera, and to ask all those important questions. And so in addition to having that sign-up form, by the way, the sign-up form on MailSpade didn't do anything. It, it said coming soon. Um, but I did have a spot for you to say, you know, be alerted when this comes available, and, they, and I took an email address. And the idea there was if I was, if I was deciding to move forward on this and actually move forward to pricing, um, I had a list of people I could contact and get feedback on uh, the pricing. So you can sort of drive that interest, but also collect people who would be likely customers and engage in further conversation with them. Of course, now you've got SendGrid, who's actually doing this and has built a big business around it. Good for them. And uh, I have a, a highly ranked uh, SEO'd uh, site if, they, if anyone wants to buy it and compete with them. So, uh, so what else? I would say another goal, so you, you've, you've come across what you think to be the right price because cost-based and value-based and competitive-based pricing and talking to customers has all given you an idea of what you think the pricing should be. You have an idea in your head. You have a proposed pricing plan. My advice to you is to start conservative. What does that mean? Overprice. Charge more. Because you can always drop prices if needed. And I think dropping prices is a great way to delight your customers. You shouldn't be tricky, though. Um, you can, however, 
raise prices as well. But it's very hard. Um, and as, as Darmesh this morning said, you need to grandfather people in, um, or else you'll have a big outcry. I think that's very good advice. Um, but you can raise prices. And people who are continuing to get the old price will be happy. People who get the new price probably won't even know. Um, and so you do have the ability to adjust. You just need to, of course, be careful with your current customers. And in some instances, you can raise the price on current customers, but it's very tricky to do unless you're skilled in the arts. I would not advise it, um, at least at this point. Um, but the key thing is, by starting conservative and lowering prices, you've got room to delight your customers. If you start really aggressive and find you need to raise your prices, uh, you've got a little more of a tricky, uh, tricky situation to deal with on your hands. That should be obvious. Okay, so you've got the price, you went out in the market, you were a little bit conservative, um, and you, you marked it maybe a little bit higher than you thought you could just to be conservative. Do you now have the right price? Maybe you're still not sure. Maybe you don't know. And there's a temptation to add more pricing options. What if this part of the market doesn't want to pay, and that part does, and this feature costs more, and that one, and coming up with more options? This just sort of makes sense, right? Figure out different ways and put them all up there and see what sticks on one pricing page. No, wrong, don't do that. Um, I believe that in the world of SaaS, just like in the world of consumer products, groceries, you don't want to do that. There's something called the paradox of choice. The paradox of choice is if a consumer has too many options, you can read this book, but I'll, I'll distill it for you. Too many options, instead of picking the optimal choice, consumers don't buy. It is overwhelming. You overload their decision circuit and they move on. So literally, when someone is trying to figure out what they want to buy and there's too many options, instead of just picking one, they buy mustard instead. Right? So you need to be careful in your pricing model. It's okay to have a few choices. But if you overdo it, if you have too many models, you can pay us monthly, you can pay us annually, you can pay us daily, you can pay us by product line, you have this add-on and that add-on, right? <coughs> this will hurt your adoption rate because you will overload people's decision circuit. Um, and so keep it simple is really the lesson here. Um, and there's science behind this, mostly involving barbecue sauce. However, there are ways to do this successfully, and you see this a lot. Audience segmentation. Um, you see it quite a bit all over the place when you look that there are good ways to take certain customers and segment them off from other customers and charge people differently. You just need to make sure you're pretty disciplined about how you do it, right? So there's a few um, properties upon which it's very common to segment, and I'll walk through a few of them. So first is quantities. So the 37 Signals guys do quite a bit of quantity-based segmentation. So you got 100 product, uh, projects with the premium, max is unlimited, and plus is 35, right? So depending on what size company you are, how many projects you have is a pretty good proxy for that. <coughs> and so we're going to try to uh, target uh, the pricing based on that. Um, there's other things too, right, that go along with it. Gigabytes of storage, number of users, although they're all unlimited, so that's a stupid one. Um, but essentially, the idea is pick a few things that you think a bigger company with more, uh, with deeper pockets, basically, is going to be able to spend and segment based on that. And that's decent. Um, there's another one here, right? You've got uh, uh, another one, which is features, right? So features is another interesting one. And I'll pull up SendGrid for this, this example. So why would you pick 
The, uh, uh, why would you pick the gold or platinum one? Well, because you get more features than you would get otherwise. And that's a reason why you'd adopt. In particular, what features? Well, let's look at these. Dedicated IP, that's good for deliverability. White labeling is good for agencies. Uh, Sub-user panel, again, that's good for agencies, right? They figured out their audience. Agencies are big users. And in fact, they've got many customers underneath them. And so they can pay more if we give them features that are specific to them uh, that unlock new capabilities of the product. And another one is support. And this is one that we use, actually. Um, so we charge more for more aggressive support. This is Salesforce's model, too. The major difference between these additions is 24 by 7 Premier support. Um, and it's interesting. We do this, too. We charge extra for 24 by 7 phone support. Um, why? Well, because it costs us a lot more to offer that product. So it makes sense that we would be able to charge more for it. But also, you look at the people who want or need that level of support, they tend to be big enterprises. Um, and oftentimes, in a procurement department, there's a checkbox that says, do we have 24 by 7 phone support? Right? And so they need to check that box in order to adopt you. So you need to provide it if you want that customer. Um, but it's interesting because that is a potential revenue center for you. Um, it's another good segmentation method. And lastly, and I really like this one, hats off to Patrick, appointment reminder, uh, industry segmentation. So certain users of your product have more demands and might have more money. And this one, HIPAA compliance. Checkbox at the end. Look at that price differential. That's a pretty good one. I like that one a lot. So there's all sorts of ways in which you can try to segment uh, your customers. Uh, again, knowing your customers will help you figure out how to do it. But figuring the right vectors uh, to turn on the customers you want and to, to also have an attractive price to the customers who don't need those options, really critical. But there's another interesting thing going on. In each of these pricing models, <coughs> there is a recommended, a highlighted, a one that draws your eye option that they want you to pick. And it is neither the cheapest nor is it the most expensive. Well, why wouldn't they just put the most expensive one as the, everybody, click on $6.99. You must want HIPAA compliance. Well, there's an interesting uh, psychology of the human mind. Um, and really, we should all have like psychologists working in our pricing teams, because that's really what this is. Um, there's an interesting aspect of our minds, which is you want to offer less attractive options. So compared to that, that compared to the max plan, the premium plan is a screaming deal. Right? Thank God I'm not paying $149 a month. It's only $99. Right? And so by positioning where you really think most of your people are going to pay next to less attractive options, and you can do that on both sides. You can say, this one is way, way too much money. Thank God I'm not paying that. On the other side, you could say, well, that one's clearly for companies that aren't as sophisticated as mine. Um, you can get people to buy the plan <clears throat> that makes sense for them. Right? And, it's, and it's very interesting, right? Only suckers would buy those other plans. And I'm not one of those guys. Right? So there's an interesting psychology there. And oftentimes it's called anchoring, right? price anchoring. So compared to the most expensive one, this is cheap. Right? It's the same psychology that goes on you know, when you're, when you're going to go buy a you know, blender on late night television. And they're like, you know, $49.95, you'll get this delicious blender. But tonight only, $12. 
right? They anchored in your mind, this is blenders worth $50. And now I can get this $50 thing for 12 bucks. What an amazing deal. Who the fuck knows it's worth $50? They just told you that. It's worth about eight cents, right? And so the whole notion of price anchoring can take someone who would not have spent very much because they thought it was worth 12 cents or someone who wouldn't have bought it at all, but only because it's a screaming deal does something jump out at them and say, you know what, maybe I will try it because this is my one-time offer to, 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 to get this going, right? And you also see words here, only $99 a month, recommended silver plan, right? That's to enforce that notion, right? So there's a lot of interesting things you can do to get that buying behavior working um, in your favor. So to summarize here a bit, you know, starting off with knowing your doer, issuing mating calls, make it so that they are contemplating your pricing plan and make it clear that you have a service that appeals to them and will solve their problems for which they should pay you some price. Next, figure out in some way, how much value are you generating for that customer? Somehow you must generate value. You're either gonna make them more money or you're gonna save them money but you'd better be doing one of those two, and if so, figure out how much. Test that assumption. If you assume I'm saving you $100 a month, test it, see if that's true. Test if uh, I'm saving you $100 a month, would you pay me $70 a month to save that 100? Um, betas, it's a great way to test out your, your assumptions with customers. Make them free, is my strong recommendation, and use that as an opportunity to learn about the value prop you're giving to that customer, as well as get the pricing guidance you need from them after they've figured out the value prop. Once you go public, though, do it with a price tag. Make money, be proud, put a price on your junk, go public with a price tag, and adjust if necessary. Ideally, you're adjusting down, right? And then lastly, these pricing levers and price anchoring are really good ways to segment your audience and also to get them buy into a category that makes sense for you. Um, that's what I've got about pricing your hot sass. I think we've got a few minutes left if there's any questions. Do we? Yeah. All right. Uh, how much uh, conflict do you see between uh, giving too much choice and the different pricing options? Is there a rule of thumb for that? Conflict? Well, uh, like how many different pricing options would you give where, you know, eventually it would become too much choice, right? Ah. You know, I have no science behind this. This actually, so we don't, uh, at Twilio, we don't have sort of a set, like a monthly subscription pricing model. So it's not been an area where we've had to invest a lot of research. Um, anecdotally, I would say that three or four is the right number. Um, I like three personally. I think when you look at the, um, 37 Signals guys have done a lot of blogging about this and that pricing page for them, and it should be for everybody, one of your key conversion pages. So you spend a lot of time optimizing it. They used to have, I believe, five across, um, and free was one of them. They went down to three. Uh, I think they had four maybe, and then now they're at three. And the free thing, they still offer it, but it's in a small banner underneath. Uh, very much not the peer of those other options. So, you know, I would look at what other people are doing, but ultimately for your business, run the tests, uh, A-B test it. Um, but I think three or four is roughly what the industry would consider to be the right number. Anyone else? For products? Uh, sure. 
For products that are priced uh, similar to, I guess, Twilio or Amazon, um, we're considering that price model. And one concern I have is that it's not clear to the user as they arrive on the page how much the service is going to cost them. Like, so if we say we're going to charge you by the emails you send or we're going to charge you by the EC2 compute units, it's like that doesn't map to a figure in the user's head necessarily. I'm wondering, have you seen that to be a problem or do you have any advice on it? Yeah, I think it depends on how clear the unit is to their business. Um, <coughs> if it's truly something they have no, not like they might currently use that thing, but they have no um, sort of knowledge of it, then having a calculator or some comparisons. You see it at Amazon. Um, they compare their compute uh, units to like Xeon processors, a pretty dated analogy at this point that they still haven't updated. Um, but they sort of try to give you that comparison. Um, I think they might also have some calculator where it's like put in how many instances you need, but that's just doing math. That's not very hard. Um, the key thing is if you don't know, and there's a weird one, um, I believe it's their uh, simple RDS, Relational Database Service, where, oh no, it's the um, key value store one. Anyone know what that's called? RD SimpleDB. And SimpleDB, they charge you compute units for how expensive your queries are, but because you have no visibility into the underlying architecture, you have no fucking clue how performant it is. And so they had to go way out of their way to like try to create some sort of calculator that would like describe if you had X million rows and if you had this many indices and if you did this and if it took four seconds. And I, you know, I look at that and I say that's really way too complicated um, because clearly you're mapping your pricing onto a model that your customers just aren't thinking about. Uh, so what's best, I mean, for us, our pricing units are minutes, messages, phone numbers. And most customers come to us and have some sense of what those things mean, because they're real life things that us as consumers use. When I spend a minute on the telephone, I kind of understand what that is. Or I send a text message, it's fairly obvious. Um, there are certain things you can do to sort of, especially when it comes to like if you have a competitive um, uh, pricing that you're kind of trying to compare apples and oranges, um, to do a calculator that shows what you'd spend if you use that model versus what you'd spend if you use our model. So in our world, we, do, we have a lot of customers doing call tracking on top of Twilio. You provision a phone number, you put it on a web page, someone calls that number, you can do analytics before you send the call off to, say, an advertiser. Um, and there's been companies in the market doing that for the last five, 10 years, charging a ton of money because it was completely opaque. No one knew how much it costs. So you pay like $10 a phone number per month. And then with us, they're paying $1 plus uh, $0.03 cents a minute for the phone calls. So the big question that the buyer often, we found, didn't know how many calls does each of these phone numbers get? Well, we did a bunch of analysis, and we found that the average phone number in that use case, where you put a phone number on a website in like a directory or something, the average uh, phone number gets like seven phone calls a month for a grand total of like 20 minutes. So their $10 on us is like $1.10 um, and something like that. It's, just, it's a crazy comparison, yet the piece of information that we had to kind of put together for them was, Here's how many calls that phone number is likely to get. Um, and once you know that number, you plug it into like a calculator and you say, holy shit, this is a huge savings. So, does that make sense? Yeah, thank you. Sure. Done? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Very much, Jeff. That was awesome. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Really, really good.